0: Every year, Americans eat about 11 billion quarts of popcorn, which makes it, by volume, Americans' favorite snack food. That's right, it's not potato chips or chocolate chip cookies, it's popcorn. But what does anyone really know about the food? Hi, I'm Samantha, and welcome to Footnoting History. Today, I'll be discussing the history of popcorn. Many people are under the impression that popcorn was introduced to the pilgrims by Native Americans at the first Thanksgiving in 1621. This idea was intentionally cultivated by popcorn advertisers to make the product seem more traditionally American. It is also completely erroneous. Popcorn is a very old foodstuff. The oldest specimens were found in Mexico and are about 7,200 years old. However, there's some debate about whether or not these earliest remains were actually eaten. Paul Magelsdorf, the archaeologist who found the popcorn in Mexico, noted that there was no evidence that the seeds were actually eaten. He thought, in fact, that the product was so different from the modern variety of popcorn that it could not be tolerated in the human diet. This insinuation apparently really bothered another archaeologist, George Beadle, who responded by consuming 75 grams of the ancient seeds for two days and then 150 grams for the next two. In doing so, he proved that the human digestive system can handle the ancient popcorn. But the experiment, of course, does not actually prove anything about what happened in the past. What is more indicative, from my perspective at least, is that anyone bothered cultivating popcorn at all. Maize cannot grow without human intervention. Therefore, the fact that the seeds exist, and were found in a human site, no less, mean that somebody bothered to grow it. Why would anyone bother to grow it if they didn't eat it? We cannot know, however, whether or not popcorn was a major part of the diet, or even if it was the kernels, as opposed to the leaves which were actually eaten. But we do know that popcorn has been around and presumably consumed for a long time. Popcorn was present in what is currently the southwest of the United States no later than 4,000 years ago. Its introduction to the northeast of the United States, however, was much later. There is some evidence that it might have been eaten in small quantities in the 18th century when Benjamin Franklin described something like modern popcorn, but there is no archaeological evidence of kernels east of the Mississippi until the 19th century. When popcorn was introduced to mainstream American culture, it actually came in a roundabout way. It was probably brought to the U.S. by American merchants and sailors who came across it while trading with Chile, where it remained a common food stuff. Its popping made it a novelty, and by the 1840s, popping corn had become a popular recreational activity in parts of the United States. At first, the corn was grown for home consumption, but by the 1860s, a few companies began producing and selling popcorn to the American consumer. Popcorn was a fun novelty for the same reasons it is today. It was fun to watch and to hear it pop. But actually making popcorn was much more difficult in the 19th century than it is today. There were several methods to make popcorn. The simplest was to put the kernels into hot ashes and stir. It popped well, but the food that was produced was covered in ashes. Mmm, appetizing. It was also possible to put kernels into pierced cookie sheets over the fire, but doing so resulted in a product that had a smoky flavor and was often burned. The closest to the modern method of popping was to put the kernels into a kettle or covered frying pan with lard. This method produced the best flavor, but if the ratio of corn to lard was off, the popcorn would be wet in texture, and uh, as with other methods, it was difficult to get the corn to pop evenly without burning. By the 1870s, popcorn was popular enough that we begin to see widely manufactured poppers coming onto the market. The earliest versions would effectively be wire baskets with long handles which could be held and shaken over the fire. In 1897, consumers could buy popcorn and poppers at Sears for $0.06. They could also buy their popcorn there for $0.05 per quart, which is roughly the equivalent of about a buck fifty today. As you can imagine, one of the appeals of popcorn was that it was an affordable snack. When it was initially introduced to the United States, popcorn was chiefly cultivated in small gardens. Farmers would often offer their sons small patches of land to grow popcorn. The boys would then grow for their own consumption, drying what they grew in attics and selling what they didn't eat, much as a child might run a lemonade stand today. Many believed that it was better to give boys a crop to raise and to teach them the ways of business rather than to give them an allowance. This practice ensured that popcorn was widely available, especially among children. Over time, we start to see commercial production of popcorn alongside the continued youthful entrepreneurship. Popcorn soon became a popular novelty among upper and middle class Americans. They experimented with different things to do with popcorn, and we start to see recipes in popular magazines for popcorn confections. For a time, popcorn flour was even used to make bread, which apparently remained fresh much longer than bread made with wheat because popcorn has a higher moisture content. Popcorn flour, however, has been rarely used since the Second World War. Popcorn was also a forerunner of modern breakfast cereals. It was popularly eaten, immersed in milk, with a sweetener. As such, it actually inspired commercial cereal manufacturers like Kellogg, Such manufacturers, however, stopped short of actually boxing popcorn because they believed it was too easy to make at home and therefore would not be profitable. Over time, the aggressive promotion of manufactured cereals as breakfast foods caused popcorn to lose popularity in this way, and it was no longer a common breakfast food by the second decade of the 20th century. Other popular sweet confections were popcorn balls, popcorn cakes, and popcorn crisps, which I understand were similar in appearance to potato chips, but were typically sweetened with syrup. Along with these other sweet popcorn treats, the Ruppenheim brothers from Chicago created a sweetened popcorn product that they called Cracker Jack in 1896. Following the creation of a wax-sealing package in 1899, which allowed Cracker Jack to stay fresh longer, the catch song Take Me Out to the Ball Game" in 1908, and the insertion of prizes into every box in 1912, the Crackerjack Company became extremely successful. By 1939, its annual sales of Crackerjack reached $2.4 million. Crackerjack has since been sold twice and is currently owned by Frito Lay, a company which incidentally boasts two fifths of the worldwide sales in salty snacks. Cracker Jack sales now exceed $100 million annually, and Cracker Jack remains mainstay in baseball stadiums. In Fenway Park, for example, roughly 1,000 bags are sold every game, and when Yankee Stadium swapped Cracker Jack for another caramel popcorn in 2004, fans protested, and their favorite snack was reintroduced two months later. But I've gotten ahead of myself. Let's take a step back to the 1880s, when we start to see popcorn wagons being used to pedal popcorn in the street. The steam-powered roasters created by Secreters and Company, also of Chicago, weighed roughly 500 pounds and could be pulled by a boy or a small pony. The contraption also held a peanut roaster and as such provided all of the snacks which were becoming popular in the American diet. Peanuts and popcorn, you see, hold a special place in the history of eating. Before the popularization of these foods, it was deemed unhealthy to snack between meals. But over time, Americans started to eat these foods, and now, snacking has become a normal part of the day. Though whether or not this change is good remains to be seen. Popcorn was widely sold in the streets until the introduction of automobiles. Once there was more traffic on the streets, however, cities started to require licenses for street vendors. And many popcorn vendors began to either open shops or gradually move into the movie theaters. Today, we perceive a special connection between popcorn and the movies. In fact, as I was writing this podcast, a random stranger saw my stack of books and started telling me about how she cannot go to the movies without eating popcorn. She's hardly alone with this association. I saw a cooking show once in the United Kingdom, which did a study of people eating popcorn and determined that people are actually more likely to eat popcorn and report that it tastes better when they're in the cinema than when they're at home. This association, however, is not an innate one and developed gradually. Initially, cinema owners were resistant to selling popcorn. They worried that it would cheapen the movie-going experience. On top of that, there were considerable costs to selling popcorn. Fire codes required that establishments selling popcorn needed to have extra vents. These renovations could prove costly. Popcorn could also create a mess in the theaters, which would require additional cleaning staff not to mention the staff who would actually sell the popcorn. Some theater owners, however, saw the potential profitability of popcorn. These earliest owners leased the space outside their doors to popcorn vendors, who then sold to both patrons and passers-by. During the Depression, however, some entrepreneurs recognized that popcorn was still an affordable luxury and could bring in a lot of money if they began to sell it inside their theaters. The profit margin on popcorn was significant. 100 pounds of popcorn cost $10 and produced about 1,010-cent bags of popcorn, thereby generating $90 of pure profit. As such, it actually generated more profit than any other snack. By the end of the 1930s, some cinema owners actually reported that although they were losing on ticket money on ticket sales, they could make so much profit off popcorn that they were able to stay afloat. By the beginning of World War II, the popcorn industry was booming. When the War Production Board curtailed non-essential production, the National Association of Popcorn Manufacturers argued that production of popcorn should not be restricted. They sponsored the publication of a booklet entitled Popcorn is a Fighting Food, in which they argued that popcorn should be sent to soldiers to maintain morale and to boost nutrition. In the end, popcorn was deemed an essential product, and production continued. The war was actually good for popcorn sales, because while sugar, chocolate, and many other treats were rationed, popcorn was not. Its popularity duly increased, and those theater owners who had previously resisted selling popcorn began to do so in the 1940s. By 1943, civilian consumption of popcorn had exploded to roughly three times what it had been before the war. Because of problems on the production side, popcorn sales would fall again before the war that would not discourage the popcorn industry. After the war, new harvesting technology was adopted, new sales campaigns were put in place, and sales increased yet again. The American popcorn company sold 250,000 cases of popcorn in 1947. This number more than doubled over the next two years. While domestic consumption increased, so too did international sales. American servicemen had introduced popcorn to civilian populations all over the world. Popcorn quickly became a staple of the British diet. It was also popular in Scandinavia, Canada, and Japan, where MSG was used to flavor commercial popcorn. Nowhere did popcorn sales increase more than in the movie theaters. By 1945, almost half of all popcorn grown in the United States was consumed in theaters, and in some places, it grossed more than admissions. In 1950, there were some 20,000 movie theaters in the United States, and movie attendance reached $90 each week. By 1956, however, movie attendance had declined by almost a quarter because of the introduction of televisions in the home. Popcorn producers, however, would not be deterred. They teamed up with Coca-Cola and Morton Salt in an aggressive campaign designed to establish these products as part of the television ritual in the home. They were pretty successful. A survey conducted by Time Magazine in 1950 reported that while only 4% of Americans ate popcorn every night of the week, 63% of respondents ate popcorn in their home at least once a week. So, even as movie attendance declined, popcorn consumption soared. In 1950, Americans consumed roughly 242 million pounds of popcorn each year. By 1965, we were eating 533 million pounds. The increase of popcorn consumption in the home, of course, meant that we needed to have more convenient ways to make popcorn. Electric poppers had been available since the turn of the 20th century. However, before World War II, most rural areas lacked electricity, and many of those with electricity could not afford fancy poppers. Then, in 1935, the Rural Electrification Administration was established, and by the end of the war, 90% of rural areas had electricity. The Second World War also made people wealthier, and therefore made electrical poppers more common. These early poppers, however, posed some safety problems. For example, if they were not unplugged immediately, they were a real fire hazard. They were also difficult to clean and required precise measurements of both oil and corn. These problems were confronted by Benjamin Banowitz, also of Chicago, who knew that Chicago had so many popcorn innovations. Banowitz was a movie theater owner. He studied sales in his theater and discovered that popcorn was the main money earner. He also foresaw the impact of television and realized that there was a potential market if home consumption could be increased. In order for that to happen, there needed to be a strong advertising campaign, but there also needed to be a convenient way to make popcorn at home. He began to experiment, and by 1948, he had come up with a package which sold pre-measured oil, salt, and popcorn in a hermetically sealed bag. All the consumer had to do was pour everything into a pan and heat it up. He named his product TV Time Popcorn. He tested his product in Pittsburgh and realized that it could be a real money maker. Over the next few years, he spent over $2 million on advertising in Philadelphia and New York. Unfortunately, Banowitz did not have the resources to maintain this kind of spending, and while his sales were exceptional, the company was almost bankrupt within a year. He was asked to step down as president, and the company was salvaged, but never became a major player in the national popcorn market. Another early popcorn innovator was Benjamin Coleman of Michigan. He was also convinced that people would eat more popcorn if they didn't need to clean up after it. And so he created a product which sold popcorn and oil with an aluminum foil container for cooking. He named his product Easy Pop and introduced it to the public in 1954. Although his product ultimately failed, it inspired a nearly identical product called Jiffy Pop, which was launched in 1960. The latter product made some innovations to the aluminum pan design, But more importantly, marketed itself as a fun, easy-to-clean-up snack for children. This campaign was a success, and by the next year, Jiffy Pop was selling 15,000 units and opened a second production facility. Of course, the ultimate success of popcorn in the home must be credited to the microwave, but this innovation was a long time in coming. During the war, an American genius named Percy Spencer who might actually be a worthy subject for a Footnoting History podcast on his own, was invited by the British government to help mass-produce megatrons, a new technology used to generate microwaves. When the war ended, Spencer suggested that the megatron might be used to heat food. He received a patent for the idea in 1945 and began to make his vision a reality. In 1946, Spencer constructed a prototype microwave oven, which cost about $100,000, which is over a million dollars in today's currency. It took another 10 years to produce the first domestic microwave oven, which retailed for $1,295, approximately $10,000 today. Because of the cost of microwaves, Spencer's initial suggestion that the technology could be used to make popcorn was disregarded. Improvements, however, were continually made and costs were brought down so that by 1966, an estimated 10,000 American households owned microwaves. As ownership increased, the idea of using microwaves to make popcorn was revisited. Making popcorn in the microwave, however, is much more complicated than just putting kernels in the machine and pressing start. The first microwave popcorn bag was created by Pillsbury in 1976, but the bag had to be frozen. The first shelf staple popcorn would be introduced in 1983. The widespread use of microwaves to make popcorn was one of the reasons for the success of popcorn in the 1980s and beyond. The other major reason for popcorn success were the efforts of people like Orville Redenbacher and Charles Bowman in the creation of gourmet popping corn. Before in the 1970s, popcorn was a generic item. The main thing that purchasers, and here I'm talking mostly about movie theater owners, wanted was to increase the volume of popcorn because they could increase their profits that way because although they purchased the popcorn seeds by weight, they sold by volume. And They didn't really care much about anything else. All of this changed due to the single-handed efforts of Orville Redenbacher and his partner Charles Bowman. Ruttenbacher planted popcorn as a boy. He later studied agronomy and genetics at Purdue University before becoming a manager of a popcorn farm in Indiana. While he was there, he applied what he learned about genetics and began breeding a new super popcorn. Eventually, he partnered with Charles Bowman, also a graduate of Purdue, and in the 1950s, they began to really focus on creating a better sort of popcorn and found the ideal seed, which they named Red Bow, in 1965. When they tried to sell their popcorn to the leading popcorn manufacturers, however, they were refused because this popcorn cost a little bit more to produce and the main producers believed that the American consumer would not pay more for a better sort of popcorn. Redenbacher sought to prove them wrong and so he set out selling his popcorn out of the trunk of his car. After hiring a public relations specialist, they changed the name of their product to Orville Redenbacher's Gourmet Popping Corn, and they began to actively promote it as the world's most expensive popcorn. Of course, here they were playing a game. Although Redenbacher's popcorn was more expensive than other popcorns, it was also cheaper than most other snack foods, but could still make people feel sophisticated. By 1974, with the aid of successful marketing, Redenbacher's popcorn accounted for 4% of popcorn sales in the United States. By the end of the decade, it was the highest-grossing popcorn company, controlling 18% of the market. Redenbacher continued to be successful, even launching its own microwave popcorn and becoming the exclusive supplier for Disney parks. By 1988, Redenbacher's popcorn accounted for approximately one-third of popcorn sales in the United States. I would note, however, that although Orville Redenbacher remained the public face of the company, he and Bowman had sold out and did not actually own the company after 1976. Popcorn was the snack food of the 1980s. In 1981, American farmers produced approximately 600 million pounds of popcorn a year. By 1991, they were producing more than 1 billion pounds, an increase of approximately 166%. Since then, popcorn production in the United States has remained more or less consistent, hovering at around a billion pounds. This, too, is remarkable. Popcorn has survived multiple diet crazes and evolved into a reputedly healthy snack. It remains a must-eat treat when we go to the cinema, and I, for one, will be surprised if popcorn goes anywhere soon. So while popcorn wasn't eaten by any pilgrims, it certainly has become the quintessential American snack food. This has been Footnoting History. If you like the podcast, be sure to visit our website, footnotinghistory.com, where you can find links to further reading suggestions related to this week's episode, as well as a calendar of upcoming podcasts. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at HistoryFootnote. Until next time, remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes. See you next week!